As a kid, if you wanted to be a journalist, and even if you didn't, the dream job was always working for a magazine. You'd come to work in a midtown high-rise, hang up your coat, you'd pitch stories to your editor who sat in a big glass office, you'd expense drinks, you'd quit one day, but only to write your book, a book that got turned into a movie, a movie about a journalist, a romantic comedy. But like the romantic comedy genre itself, the big glossy magazine is almost a relic. And nobody has felt that transformation more than Condé Nast, the king of the big glossies. It owns titles like The New Yorker and GQ and Bon Appetit. And it has struggled in the last decade. Print ads are down, digital has been hard to match, and it's been roiled by culture wars that have seen editors fired and newsrooms in disarray. Plus, Condé's not even in Midtown anymore. The job of turning all this around falls to its CEO, Roger Lynch. This is Tom Dotan, a reporter at The Information, and in this episode of The Information's 411, I interviewed Roger about his plans to remake the magazine company. We covered a lot of ground, from his plans to turn Condé Nast into a video-producing powerhouse, why the pandemic was a very, very tough year, but ultimately why he's optimistic. We also spent a while touching on the crisis that embroiled Bon Appetit last year. Then in section two, I spoke with Alex Heath and Matt Olson about their recent conversation with Mark Zuckerberg, who appeared on the podcast on Monday to talk about his plans around AR and VR. Many of you may be joining us after that interview. Welcome. Alex and Matt and I broke down what we learned from our time hearing how Zuckerberg planned to invest big time in the technology. But first, it's Roger and me. Yeah, Roger, I was actually thinking about this just before I got into this session, but I believe the first time you and I met, um, you were giving a talk about Sling uh, when you were working there for Dish. And and now here you are at Condé, um, which I imagine is a very different world. How does it compare, uh, you know, working in the magazine world and, and this industry that's going through rapid transformation to, you know, where you came from previously? You know, if you look at the arc of my career, the one common theme has been operating at the intersection of technology and media, which fundamentally means transformation. So whether it was the companies I ran in Europe before I moved back to the U.S. or starting Sling TV, which was really about transforming how pay TV uh, operates, that's always been the area that has interested me. Going into this job, what did you see as the advantage and also the overhang of working with these, you know, storied brands like The New Yorker, like Vanity Fair, Bon Appetit, uh, you can go on down the list. I mean, what did you see as an advantage it has as you enter this new kind of largely digital era and and ones that kind of held it back? Yes, they're storied brands, but really if you look at the engagement with the audiences that we have or the growth in our consumer engagement, it is from very young people. Even, you know, you mentioned The New Yorker. There was just a recent study of the brands for Gen Z that were most ascendant for Gen Z, and the New Yorker was one of them. And so these are brands that really are appealing to new audiences. So you don't see it any sort of a hindrance at all in an era of, of, of TikTok and Instagram where it seems like younger audiences have real attachments to influencers that are quite a bit younger than, than the kind of brands you're mentioning here. You don't see that as problematic as you try to build up its digital presence and revenue and you know get a new generation of people interested in these types of titles. I, I see those new platforms as the opportunity for us to reach those audiences, and we do it. I mean, if you look at whether it's in China, where GQ has one of the largest WeChat accounts in China, or things that we do on TikTok, like we did, uh, uh, Hamish Bowles did a, a little video about the Met on TikTok, and within a couple of days, it had over a billion views. I mean, these are platforms 
that enable us to engage with the audience in the way they want to engage with us. Could we go, I want to go to some of the individual titles here because that uh, I, I'm curious if they tell a somewhat different story. I and mean, when you look at the different titles that are you know underneath the Conde group, there's obviously the lifestyle ones, there's the news ones, um, you know, there, there's travel ones. Which do you think have been, or which have been the most robust uh, throughout the kind of decline in print advertising? Some of our brands are more dependent on advertising than others. If you take a brand like The New Yorker, that today is now largely a consumer revenue uh, business. I think something like 80%, close to 80% of its revenue is from consumer revenue subscriptions. And, okay. uh, and advertising is a, is a minority on it. So that, you know, when you have an event like in 2020, where there was a contraction in advertising, especially in Q2 and Q3, you know, the New Yorker can be a little more resilient because it has such strong consumer revenue. Um, if you take an example of something like Vanity Fair, that's a, that's a, that's a great example of, of a title that was largely a print advertising title. And, you know, our editor, Radhika Jones, came in and really started growing the digital audiences and really repositioning Vanity Fair and if you look at it today, it's now our single largest digital audience title. But it's 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 you know they have successfully now been transitioning that from uh, a, a title that relied primarily on print advertising to one that is very strong digitally and a, and a very strong and growing consumer uh, revenue segment. So it's different brand by brand. You know, Wired has leaned into e-commerce in a, in a way that has really been successful. One of the, it's our, uh, I think it's our biggest title in e-commerce and our fastest growing. What was your experience in kind of that period of reckoning last summer when multiple Condé Nast brands, but, ex you know, specifically Bon Appetit were really brought under scrutiny for issues around diversity, pay equity. It was a very, very challenging time. Probably one of the most challenging times in my career, but in part because the issues that people were raising and we're concerned about are issues that are really, really important to me. And, and they're issues that even long before it, it all sort of blew up over the summer were things that I had begun working on when I joined the company. So, I mean, one of the first things I did um, after joining the company was uh, create a global diversity and inclusivity council, including employees from all around the world, every one of our markets where we operate to really help us because I knew we had issues that we had to address to really help us figure out how to improve that at the company. While, while there were definitely issues we had to address there, there were also things that were raised at issues that we went and investigated and they weren't. Like, you know, this issue of, you know, were there pay disparities based on race? You know, we, we hired an outside firm to come really analyze that and there were none. But there were issues around transparency around how we pay or how we pay for video. You know, someone had made a comment that we don't pay for video. That was false. We, we do. We just we had to be more transparent about it. And so I don't mean to minimize those issues because they were real significant. But, um, what, you know, certainly one of the, the um, takeaways from that was we have to be very, very transparent about those areas. And we are. That's why we published our report in, December, in, in September and we've just updated it. And we'll continue to be out really on the, uh, on the front foot of how we deal with these issues. Do you think you could have gotten out ahead of the topic a little bit more? It seemed to me just reading the commentary on Twitter, you guys were a punching bag for, for several weeks. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure there were some public responses. And, you know, at the same time, there were whole shows that were dedicated to exploring, 
you know, all the problems at Bon Appetit that you guys, you know, obviously didn't what didn't produce um, and, and, you know, your input in it was, was maybe minimized. But do you feel like you could have handled it differently and been more active and, and tried to kind of steer the conversation in a different direction? We focused on our employees. So, it, you know, when we were really um, at the most difficult time of that, I did a global town hall every single day. And I did it at different time zones. So the employees from around the world could ask questions in a live form. And we did it every single day because that was my focus. I wanted to be focused on our employees and the communication with our employees and let them know how we were addressing the issues that were raised. And yes, we could have come out and countered some of the some of the false things that were said, but I just did, you know, I, I wasn't interested in getting into uh, you know, a, a Twitter war with former employees who are making allegations that that uh, may not have been true. And so we, we've really focused um, internally and, uh, and on our own employees. What's the impact that it had on the business? Uh, n- not only, you know, from a brand perspective, but also investments that had to be made. I mean, the, the Bon Appetit Test Kitchen, most of the original cast members, I don't know the right word would be, uh, uh, you know, stepped away from it and you have a new cast. And I just looking at the YouTube video views, they're down significantly. Um, I mean, that may just be one metric, but overall, how did you see this whole period affecting the business? And and going forward, do you think there are changes that could make you know business more challenging for you guys, or at least you know take some time to build up to where it was? It it certainly did have an impact on our business, but the you know when you look at YouTube video views, part of what has affected that is that we were just you know, because of the pandemic, we were unable to produce for quite a long time, but it certainly did. And what we've seen now is that, you know, if you look at, you know, audiences, you know, our audiences are growing. So if we look at, uh, you know, looking at numbers from January and February for Bon Appetit and, you know, our audiences are up 11% year over year. Now, overall as a company, we're up higher than that, but still Bon Appetit's been growing its audience. It's been growing its um, subscription um, for, for the magazine. And the video business, we have some rebuilding to do, but we have a lot of really good new talent that uh, uh, for that. And we have a fantastic new editor-in-chief in Don Davis uh, and Sonia Chopra, our executive editor, that really, I think, are going to build a much more resilient, inclusive, uh, diverse uh, slate of content, but also audiences. And I always tell our employees, embrace the change. We might make mistakes along the way. We'll certainly make mistakes, but we'll fix them. We'll fix them quickly. And part of what we're going to be doing is transforming this business. And that means change. And that could be scary to people. But really, I encourage people to really embrace it because that is the future of our business. got probably a couple of new listeners coming to the Informations 411 based on the interview that Alex Heath and Matt Olson did with Mark Zuckerberg. And so I figured it would just be good to kind of recap. Uh, It's been a couple weeks now since they did the interview and it was a long talk. Uh, But, you know, both you guys, I mean, just after talking to him for for that period and kind of hearing his opinions on the future of, of AR and VR and what his commitment is to it. I mean, what was your biggest takeaway? Just as someone who's been covering Facebook for a while now, you know, there's this kind of cliche about how these tech founders live in the future and kind of are always looking ahead to the future. But you really, I mean, I got that from talking to Mark that his head is actually like 10 years out 
uh, quite literally. It's like what he prefers to be thinking about is this stuff that has he's trying to will into existence, you know, what he calls this next major computing platform. Uh, and that's probably for better or worse, right? It probably means he's not as present for the day-to-day as uh, maybe sometimes Facebook demands. We, uh, we also reported this week that there's about 10,000 people in this ARVR group at Facebook, which is about one-fifth of its total global workforce, a unit that you know makes no money, loses money. Right, amazing. Um, so, yeah, it just how seriously they take it, I'm not sure the market or just you know people outside of the company really understand yeah what do you think about i i will say it was helpful to hear him sort of in that podcast interview mode talk about how he sees what they're doing with oculus what they've been doing beyond just like the focused ar glasses research at facebook reality labs like how all that stuff connects together and gets them to those glasses um if, if anything it erased some of that image of here's someone who's just doing a lot of VR and it's not exactly clear why. And it's like, no, he he imagines those glasses on his face every day. And that's what makes it real for him. Did you get a sense as to why he thinks that Facebook has any sort of an advantage in in this you know very nascent field? Obviously they're, well, namely Apple, but, but a few other companies are spending heavily to build up this technology. Did you get a sense other than the fact that he's passionate about it and has deep pockets uh, to fund it? Why, why, you know, Facebook has any sort of an advantage in, you know, this this oncoming platform? He talked about it a little bit uh, that basically this is not, you know, this is a different tech computing stack you need to build than mobile. Facebook is entering like a, a what they think is a paradigm shift that gives them the opportunity to kind of start from scratch. Uh, whereas VR, he was talking about how the tech stack has evolved from mobile, whereas AR glasses, those are a lot of core tech problems, physics problems that are uh, divorced from mobile, really. Um, and so I think that's probably why they feel like they can do it. I think there's also an element of they feel like they have to do it, you know, which he talked about to, to get around Apple and Google who control, you know, Facebook on mobile, essentially through the app stores. But I think that's kind of what he the takeaway was for me is him just saying, like, this is a new thing. Like, we, we can compete on a new thing, you know, because Facebook tried their mobile phone a while back. Terrible. It was a major flop. Yeah, but it was after mobile was already established. No one knows what AR and VR really will be. I mean, he told us he thinks it's going to be eventually billions of units but no one knows for sure, right? We're, we're nowhere near there. When it comes to skepticism around it, I you know, which is my favorite angle when it comes to AR, because we are talking about a technology that is at best 10 years out. You know, he went through the challenges, like you mentioned, technologically, uh, just optics wise. Did you get a sense that he, I don't know, what, where do you think he stands in terms of skepticism on it and his belief that this could just be another folly that Facebook just, you know, washes its hands clean of after a certain point when they realize yet yeah, we just don't have the resources to, to, to invest in it. To my estimation, if if there's a part of him at all that thinks that, that fear is immediately followed by, well then what? Like do we stay on phones and stay stuck in this in this position we're in where we're beholden to other folks? Like all the chips are on the table. Ten thousand people is is a hard thing to wrap my own head around because you know that's that's yeah that's portal also that's things that are happening on the wrist that may or may not you know interface with future ar and vr platforms either as a requirement or not but everything is pushed in that direction so the idea that if it just busts out for them like i don't Alex, you you could say better than i think i can speculate here as to what the the plan b is 
I don't think there's a plan B. I mean, you can look at the bench that they put on this, you know, like he made a point of saying like, you know, Andrew Bosworth, Boz, the exec that runs this was the guy I put in charge of our mobile ads business when we IPO'd, when everyone thought we were going to die and we needed to figure out mobile to survive. It's the same guy they have running ARVR now. And then you look below him, which is like in this org chart I published this week, and the people that are running AR, VR, all the key pillars are people who have been at Facebook for over a decade and who have run like the ads business, pages, core product stuff. It's not like with Google where Google has kind of taken uh, other companies and like put them off to the side or, you know, like it's it's like they have a Google isn't putting like their heads of search on Pixel. You know what I'm saying? Whereas like it's basically the equivalent with what Facebook is doing. They're putting their equivalent of like heads of search on this thing that the market ascribes absolutely no value to currently, which is interesting. Yeah, no, it's clear, that in, especially based on the, the chart that you published today, this is a full court press. So I guess the last thing is, you know, and maybe we can plea, you know, put this plea out into the world, but who else do you guys want to talk to? I mean, you know, you've written about Apple and, and you know, some of the forthcoming products that they're going to put out, which are obviously far less ambitious than the kind of tenure out stuff. But who else is worth watching and who else would we like to kind of nail down and, and hear their specific takes on when it comes to the future of AR? I think the key leaders in the space are are Evan Spiegel at Snap, even though they're much smaller. Uh, don't count them out. And obviously, and he's been in it for a while. Yeah, and obviously Tim Cook, call us. Uh, but uh, I don't know, Matt, who's on your bucket list? Yeah, Tim, hit us up on mobile. Um, no, uh, I think what's gonna be what's gonna be an angle I try to hit as much as possible is even if in the next couple years out before glasses the hardware experiences are kind of clunky still and not something you'd want to use for extended periods of time. I want to talk to the folks doing the high engagement content experiences for those. I want to talk to John Hankey of Niantic uh, after they did their flashy uh, Microsoft HoloLens Pokemon Go demo and say, but hold on, you've got folks like tied into AR stuff on phones. You know that the hardware for a always on experience is maybe not there, but like, what kind of technical problems do you feel confident about solving to have people just fall in love with this experience anyway, even if the glasses end up looking, um, you know, not like something you or I would want to wear all day. Like content will drive a lot of usage in that even once it, even in a position where the hardware still has to catch up. Um, all right, guys, thanks for joining. Thanks. That is today's episode. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks to Roger Lynch of Condé Nast for sitting down for an interview and Alex Heath and Matt Olson for recapping their conversation with Zuck. And of course, Ariella Markowitz for producing. Have a good weekend. See you next week.